over the last few weeks, we've actually been in this sermon series in the book of James, uh, which was written by the brother of Jesus. And one of the things that we've been exploring is how James, he actually includes a lot of moral teachings about what Christians believe. Now, I realize some of you immediately, maybe you're someone who's walked into church for the first time and you're like, oh, great. Here he goes talking about morality. This is all what Christians are about. And the reality is, yes, morality is part of Christian teaching. Um, however, today and even throughout the next few weeks as we explore the book of James, one of the things that we're going to realize is how the underpinnings of Christian morality is different than the ways of perhaps the world and different than the ways that perhaps other religious systems might think about morality. Now, here's the thing. um, And keep in mind, James is the brother of Jesus. So everything that he's going to teach about when it comes to morality, it comes from uh, the echoes of what he had heard and witnessed in his own brother. Not only what his brother had taught, but also how his brother had lived. Now, you could imagine then, so James is part of this wisdom literature when it comes to morality that's very much in line with, for instance, the book of Proverbs uh, from the Old Testament, which, teach, uh, which um, has different maxims about how to live life in a wise way. And in addition to that, last week, for instance, I quoted from the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus gives this explosive teaching about how we're to relate to people. He says, love your enemies, right? So he takes moral standards and makes it even more pronounced in the ways that he teaches about it. And he actually embodies this idea of loving your enemies. Now we've talked about over previous weeks, how it's startling, how no one over the course of human history has been able to improve upon the moral teachings of Jesus. Um, today in our city, and even in the United States, um, we have some of the best universities in the world, some of the best thought leaders, philosophical writers. Now here's the thing. If I were to talk about three different ways in which um, uh, the brokenness and the pain of the world has been evident to us. Um, If I were to talk about sexism, for instance, or racism, or classism. Now, today in New York City, we would say that we're one of the most progressive cities and the most progressive countries in the world. Uh, And again, from the academy, but not even from the academy, but from media, we have been a people who constantly are harping on progress related to equality. Now, here's the thing, though. When it comes to sexism, for instance, in 2022, a research study was done that revealed that even today in the United States, um, women make 82 cents per every dollar that uh, a man makes in the same profession with the same qualifications. Uh, Yet another sign of just how pronounced the sexist divide is in this country in the most progressive country, arguably, around the world. Now, isn't that interesting? We pride ourselves with being so progressive in the ways that we battle sexism. And yet, the evidence suggests that we are still woefully behind. Now, the same is true for racism. As much progress has been made. If you could imagine what happened during the pandemic and then uh, the murder of George Floyd, what happened, the the eruption of the pain uh, of some of the racial disparities that exist in our country and across the world um, began to become much more paramount to everyone, or at least publicized, that there's still pain that exists. No matter how progressive we might say we are, and no matter how progressive the academy might say that we are, as so enlightened as people. The same is true for classism. There's a way in which the disparities, especially in a city like New York, continue to exist. Now, if you could keep that in mind then, here we are living in arguably the most progressive, uh, the, the people who are blowing that horn of equality from rooftops um, in Christian settings or non-Christian settings. We are talking about equality, and yet 
we are still woefully behind in all of these areas of sexism, racism, and classism. Now, if you can imagine, if that's how far we are, how far behind we are today as a progressive city, how back in the ancient world, in the ancient Near East, or in the ancient Greco-Roman world, how startling the divide was when it comes to sexism, racism, and classism. If you can imagine, we've progressed so much today, and yet we're so woefully behind. Could you imagine 2,000 years ago how different and how distinct some of the sexist behavior was, as well as some of the racist behavior, as well as some of the classist behavior? Now, why is that? Because in the ancient world and throughout human history, there was always this belief that we are divided as people, that there are some people who are the haves and others who are the have-nots, and somehow the gods are pleased with the folks that do have and the gods are displeased with those who do not, do not have. And so as a result, in the ancient world, there was a way in which men were elevated with such power and prominence, and women were seen as unreliable and demeaned considerably. Now, this isn't surprising in today's world. However, could you imagine what this was like in the ancient world? Or when it comes to racism, the ways that race divided, how so divided the, the world stands today, and yet could you imagine in the ancient world how divided and how people based on someone's race and how tied in it was with class. How the poor were seen as, oh, you are cursed by the gods. Because you were born into a family that was a slave family or something like that. And so as a result, there was this immediate belief in the ancient world, of course. There are some people that are blessed. Those are the ones who are free and the slave owners. And the ones who are cursed are the ones who are slaved or born into slavery. Now, if you could imagine that ancient world, here's what Larry Hurtado, who's uh, actually a historian, he writes in his book, Destroyer of the Gods, and he actually, what he uh, examines is how the Christian world and the Christian ethic was so different than the ancient Roman world in which it was embedded and started to flourish in. And here's what he argues. He argues that the underpinning of this idea of equality, back in the ancient world, it was ridiculous to talk about equality because it was obvious there are divisions that exist all over the world. And yet Hurtado, what he says was Christians were the first ones to introduce this idea that we're actually um, arguing and pushing for an equal kind of world. Now, that is stunning, considering that today we have many progressive thinkers that when we talk about equality, we say, no, 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 this has no religious bent. It has no basis in kind of theology. And yet Christians were the first ones uh, throughout history who were to teach about equality, which is why it's no surprise that when it comes to the women's suffrage movement, that movement was really birthed by Christians who had this belief in the equality of women. Or when it comes to slavery and the abolishment of slavery, those movements were often birthed out of people of faith who believed in the inherent dignity of everyone and the freedom that everyone should possess. Now, what Hurtado contends is this idea of equality actually is replete throughout Christian teaching. Now, I realize some of you immediately, you're just like, okay, all right, I can maybe buy some of that. However, um, hasn't the church also exacerbated some of the divisions that exist in the world? And the answer to that is, of course. The church has, um, regrettably so, uh, been a place that has been demeaning to women. It's been a place that's continued to harp on, on divisions that exist ethnically as well as racially. It's also been a place that's continued um, uh, to, to divide in, in terms of class. However, what we're going to see actually in the teachings of James and even in the teachings of the earliest Christian thinkers is that those sins of division that the church has perpetrated is actually far from the truth or far from the teachings of what Christian theology was always about from the beginning. Because Christian thought has always 
been the uh, introduction to this idea or this philosophy that we are a people who deserve equality. Uh, And we'll see this actually in the writing of James. Now, before we launch into this idea of equality, though, a couple of caveats need to be taken, right? Because some people take this idea of equality and they say, well, equality, what that certainly means is that when when we play a sport, uh, everyone gets a trophy, even the losers, you know? And so in today's culture, we might say that's what equality looks like. Well, there's a couple of caveats when it comes to this uh, in Scripture. First, there's a caveat of when it comes to leadership, um, uh, there's this idea that character really matters when it comes to leadership. So it's not like, oh, well, everyone gets to be a leader in this kind of way. In fact, leadership and character really matter. The pastoral epistles like First and Second Timothy talk about this. But in addition to that, there is this idea um, in the scriptures about uh, competence, that competence also matters too. <laughs> so for instance, in Romans chapter 12 or 1 Corinthians chapter 12, it talks about how each person has different gifts that they contribute to the body. So in other words, this idea of character and competence, both of these things matter. So it's not like saying like, what equality means is that everyone gets to do everything because we recognize that some people, they might say, I really want to sing on Sundays. And meanwhile, the people around them are like, maybe... You shouldn't be singing, but maybe you can, you know, maybe help with the tech in the back or something. Uh, Thank you, by the way, tech people. We love you guys, and we hope you can sing with us as well, Um, right? Because why? Because character and competence matter, right? But this idea then of our identity being rooted in this equality, it actually comes from the earliest Christian thinkers. So, for instance, look at what it says in the book of James. In James chapter 2, as he's teaching about what he heard from Jesus, as well as how Jesus lived. Look at what he says. He says, my brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. I mean, could you imagine? James is saying this, and he's saying it with such impunity and authority, because this is what he witnessed of Jesus. Jesus was someone who brought together Jews and Samaritans, honored women and gave them dignity, was someone who decried any kind of racist or classist kind of ways of thinking. If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. Oh, snap. I mean, James, he's got fighting words here. He's basically like, I'm about to throw down about this because this is how important this is about mirroring and echoing the teachings and the life of Jesus. We should be a people who don't show favoritism. Now, could you imagine how stunning this kind of teaching is to a people in the ancient world who just naturally observed and believed that this, you know, inequality exists and this is just the way it is, that we do have our favorites, We spend our time with those who are rich, wealthy, powerful, good-looking. Those are the people who get all the blessings from God. And yet here James is throwing in the face of that kind of thinking, and he's basically like, no, no, no. In the family of God, in the ways of Jesus, there is no favoritism. And he calls it sin. And he's like, when we call Jesus Lord, there's no way that we should be treating people in ways that would disparage them or cause them to not feel dignified. Now, this whole teaching from James, though, it's actually, it's part of what the early Christians believed. Remember, the underpinnings of this idea of equality actually finds its foundations in Christian teaching. So for instance, the Apostle Paul, I love this story because it's so real. He's writing this letter to the church in Galatia. And look at what he writes um, 
to this church when he describes what all of them observed when he was there. Look at what it says. It says, when Cephas, that's Simon Peter, who was one of the disciples of Jesus. When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face. Oh, snap. Paul ain't playing, everyone. I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, the brother of Jesus, he used to eat with the Gentiles. Now, I want to set the scene for you. Here's what basically is happening. Paul's basically saying in Antioch, he noticed that Simon Peter, who was a Jewish follower of Jesus, would actually eat with Gentiles, when originally Jews would not interact with Gentiles in this manner. Now, Peter, what he would do is he would eat with these Gentiles because he believed that, again, Christian teaching was... um, Bridging the gap between different races. So Peter is eating with Gentiles, but look at what happens. But when they arrived, this is the Jewish contingent, Peter began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group from the Jews. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. Do you see what's happening? Here's what Peter's doing. Peter's eating with the Gentiles, Then when this Jewish group comes, he basically is like, he distances himself from the Gentiles and he basically goes back with the Jews. And he's basically eating with them as if he doesn't care or even mind about the Gentiles. And Paul is basically like, I opposed him to his face. I called him out. I don't care if he's a a disciple of Jesus. On him, the church will be built. You know, Cephas, he's basically, I called him out and he stood condemned, that hypocrite. Paul is such a New Yorker. I mean, look at this. He says, when I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in front of them all, you are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? Essentially, what he's saying is he's calling them out. He's saying, you're someone who claims to follow Jesus. You're someone who claims to believe in the gospel, the good news of Jesus. You say that's what you believe in, that you follow this Jesus. And yet here you are, you're eating with Gentiles when the Jews aren't around. But when the Jews show up, all of a sudden you act better than the Gentiles and you don't even want to give them the time of day. And he opposes him to his face and he basically says, don't you see, you're not living in line with the gospel. You're not living in line with the ways of Jesus and what Jesus teaches. And Paul is basically condemning Peter to his face and before all these people and saying, you are showing favoritism. You are not living a life of equality. You are not living in line with the gospel. Oh, snap. I I mean, isn't this somewhat refreshing that like in the early church, they had problems too. (laughs) I love this. And Paul is basically confronting this and basically saying, if you want to follow Jesus, this is not how we should live. And in so doing, what Paul is basically doing is he's saying to follow Jesus, to walk in line with the gospel, is to treat people with respect, dignity, equality, with no favoritism. See, he's simply echoing the teachings of James. He's saying, if you walk in line with the Christian teaching and with the gospel, the good news of Jesus, you will actually... Not show favoritism, but you will actually treat people 
equally and with dignity and respect. That's why, look at what Paul says or what he writes later in the book of Galatia. Galatians chapter three, verse 26. He says, in Christ Jesus, let me hear you say in Christ Jesus. You are all children of God through faith. I didn't want you to repeat, but thank you for doing that anyways. <laughs> for all of you who are baptized into Christ, anyone who's made this commitment to say, I want to follow Jesus. For all of you who are baptized into Christ, have clothed yourselves with Christ. And therefore, there is neither Jew nor Gentile. There's no favorites here. There's no more loved by God here. Neither slave nor free. The ways in which the world demarcates, demarcates people by class, that doesn't exist when you're clothed in Christ. Nor is there male and female. There is no way that women should be treated despairingly. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. High five your neighbor and say one in Christ Jesus. Now, do you see how explosive this is? Like, over and against the ways that we naturally might demarcate people based on where they lived, where they grew up, what job or industry they work in. You know, those of us in nonprofit are like, that person's in finance, come on. Hungry for money. Meanwhile, people in finance are like, really, those people in nonprofit, they couldn't do anything better with their time or energy? Constantly asking for money, whatever it might be. There's ways in which we demarcate, we judge other people. But do you see, Christian teachings, if you want to walk in line with the truth of the gospel, it means that you actually believe in true equality. You believe that fundamentally, that when you're in Christ, that we are all equal. Now, what is the gospel then? What is the good news that Jesus came to give? And what Paul taught and what James taught about what he observed from the life of Jesus. Well, there's basically two truths that come to the gospel. It's basically this, is that first, and I realize both of these truths, they're going to be somewhat offensive to some of us. Uh, the first truth is this, everyone is a sinner. Everyone is a sinner. Here's what Christians believe. You know, this word sin and you are sinners and people say, well, Christians are so judgmental because they're calling everyone else sinners. Well, here's actually what Christians believe. We actually believe that everyone is a sinner, including me. Every single one of us is a sinner. Do you see how, do you see how equalizing that is? Because all of us then, we contribute to the brokenness, the woundedness, the imperfection of the world that we live in. It doesn't matter how good we are. It doesn't matter how much we've achieved, what our GPA is, what career we're in. Every single one of us is a sinner. Now, the reason why that could be offensive to me is because immediately when I hear that, I'm just like, yeah, I get it. I'm a sinner. But honestly, you haven't met my Uncle Joe. <laughs> like, that's a real sinner over there, you know? I mean, this is what we do. We start to think about other people. We, we see, start thinking, well, I, yeah, I might be bad, but honestly, I'm not as bad as those people from Boston. You know, like, those people are, like, way worse than I am. See, but here's the Christian teaching is basically for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In other words, every single one of us are sinners, we're broken, we're wounded, we're imperfect, and we all contribute to the pain and suffering and brokenness that we experience in the world. Now, so, in other words, Christianity equally offends everyone because it says everyone is a sinner. You are a sinner, I'm a sinner, we're all sinners. In fact, high five your neighbor and say, you're a sinner. 
Some of you enjoyed that too much. High five your other neighbor and say, so are you. See, Christian teaching was always like, it doesn't matter what background you come from or how rich you are, how wealthy you are, how put together you are. Everyone is a sinner. See, but because of that, the, the opposite is also true in that everyone can receive grace. Everyone can receive grace. Because Christian belief is that it's not based on your own merit or how good you are or how much work you do or how much better you are than that person. It's based on Jesus and Jesus alone. And that's why constantly when Paul is talking in Galatia, he's basically saying in Galatians, he's saying in Christ, in Christ you have been clothed. Why? Because the Christian message is everyone is a sinner, but everyone is eligible for the grace of God. Now, honestly, there's a part of me that I squirm a little bit when, when that teaching is given. Everyone is, is eligible for the grace of God because part of me is like, no, there are some people that are ineligible. Let me tell you about them. It's those people that are ha- ha- criminals. They're the ones in prison. The ones who sinned and chronically sinned and hurt so many people. Right? There's a part of me that wants to say there are people that are so beyond God's grace. And here's the explosive truth of the Christian message. It's like, no, do you understand See, the most powerful, beautiful, almost repulsive teaching of Christianity is that if someone is willing to admit that they're a sinner, no matter how far they've run or or hid or how much they've hurt other people, I mean, this is what's so astounding, is that God says if that person wants forgiveness and if that person wants grace and humbles himself and says, I need you, then everyone can receive grace from God. Now, that is stunning. Uh, But do you see how inclusive a message this is? It's the most exclusively inclusive message there is. That God's grace is so deep and far and wide that no matter how deep your sin might be, God's grace is deeper and can reach you. And, and some people here might be like, well, I, uh, you know what? That Christian stuff, God's love, he certainly loves those other people, those holier people. Those people are way better than I am. They're more deserving of love. And don't you see, though, the Christian good news of Jesus has always been, no, 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 no. It's not based on how good people are. It's based on how good God is and how loving Jesus is. And that's why he lived and died on your behalf, so that you might receive his grace, that you might know that no matter how far your shame, your fear, your wounds might be, there's a God whose love and grace is available for everyone. You just have to want it. Another way of putting this is in Christ... You are neither inferior nor superior to anyone. See, in Christ, it has this leveling effect. This is where the distinctive of Christian equality comes from. It comes from this view that our okayness before God is not based on what school you went to, your background, your parents' education. It's based on what Jesus has done for you And for us to admit that we're all sinners and we all need his grace. And when we're covered in his grace, 
This is what happens in Christ. You are not inferior to anyone, nor are you superior to anyone. So if you could imagine, if I, if like, say, for instance, the Apostle Paul walked through that door over there, and we're like, hey, the Apostle Paul is here. Um, let's all welcome the Apostle Paul. You know, he came up, and we were all clapping nervously, or at least I was. And so the Apostle Paul came up, and then Mother Teresa also showed up. And we're like, hey, Mother Teresa is here. Let's welcome Mother Teresa as well, Mother Teresa. We all clap for Mother Teresa as she comes up here. You know, and then it's like, oh, my goodness. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. has showed up to, to Hope Midtown today. And we're like, hey, let's welcome Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. up here. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. comes up here, right? A luminary when it comes to the civil rights movement um, that has impacted the world. And then all of a sudden, I, these three stood up here. And then I would say, hey, let's all welcome Joe Robertson. Joe, come on up here. You know, and everyone's like, yeah, Joe, especially that row of friends of his. They're such homers, right? Like Joe comes up here and Joe's like, what? What's going on? And he stands up here with all of these luminaries of faith. And then I were to ask this question, who does God love the most? <laughs> Peter's like, Joe, <laughs> I'm such a homer, Peter. And Joe's up here, and Joe's like, oh my goodness, why am I even up here? There's all these luminaries of faith. I can't believe this. Well, here's the answer to that question. Who does God love the most? He loves Joe the most. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, he loves all of them the most. Because they don't stand before God in what they've done or their own record or their own righteousness. They stand clothed in Christ. See, that's the good news of grace and the good news of Jesus. And so every single person here on this stage then could, could stand and be like, I am not inferior to anyone. But I'm not superior to anyone. See, in Christ, this is what it means then. Some of us, when it comes down to it, in Christ, some of us need to be humbled. Because honestly, the way that we live our lives and the way that we view ourselves, we view ourselves with such pride and arrogance over who we are. We think of ourselves as better than those people. We think of ourselves as more moral than them, more righteous than them in all these different ways. But do you see, in Christ, we're not superior to anyone. So here's what that means then. In Christ, we are people that hopefully we are pursuing humility. We are being humbled every day. We're willing to say, I am not perfect and I need God's help. And we shouldn't be ashamed to even share that we need help because if we're in Christ, we're able to say, listen, I have nothing to hide. And the reality is I need help when it comes to parenting. I need help when it comes to my marriage. I need help when it comes to uh, living my life in the, the marketplace. I need help when it comes to my anger. I need help when it comes to my lusts. I, like this is what it means to be a Christian is we're humbled to a point where because we're not inferior or superior to anyone, what we do is we're able to humble ourselves and say, God, I need you. And hopefully with each other then, the way that people experience us is not like, oh man, that person thinks they're so much better than us. They're so arrogant and pride. No, hopefully we as Christians, hopefully what we can emanate is a kind of humility where we don't think we're better than anyone at any time. But instead there's a humility that marks us. But not only that, in Christ then, we're invited to a life of boldness, of a fire that comes from believing that we're not inferior to anyone. We can actually, when, when shame and these messages come to us that tell us, well, I'm not, definitely not as great as Martin Luther King Jr., definitely not as great as Mother Teresa, definitely not great as the Apostle. I am just a loser who just doesn't have what it takes to follow. Well, you know what? You are not inferior to anyone. 
in Christ. And here's what this means. It means that you can live with a boldness and a fire. Well, I don't know. I don't know much about the Bible. Well, don't you understand? It doesn't matter what, you, what your record or your performance. You can stand clothed in Christ and begin to walk with confidence. Now, as someone who's constantly throughout my life had an inferiority complex, part of that was I grew up with three older brothers. And so I was the youngest. I had a twin brother, and even my twin brother would outshadow me. He always outperformed me in school and things like that. Um, at least we looked the same. But anyhow, but I, so in all these ways, I, I grew up with this inferiority complex. And part of it was I was really small in the school that I grew up in. I was one of the few Asian kids in our school. So as a result, there was a part of me that constantly felt like I was never good enough, never belonged and so as a result, like when I start to learn about what it means that I'm not inferior or superior to anyone, I realized there was a part of me that needed to learn how to begin to love myself again. Begin to realize like, God, I don't have to walk in my own strength or righteousness, but all the ways in which I think I'm inferior for all these different ways I can actually begin to walk with boldness and fire. Now, again, that gets tempered. If that over-indexes into arrogance and pride, hopefully, again, it's both. It's humility and boldness. And the invitation when we walk with this kind of equality is to become a people who believe that when we walk in line with the gospel, we are people who are both humble yet bold and on fire. And the question and the invitation for you and for me today is, have you been walking in line with the gospel? Have you been believing and trusting that, yeah, you're a sinner, I'm a sinner, we're all sinners here? Have you been humbled to a point where you're just like, gosh, I realize that all of my pride and my arrogance, it's built on how I look, how I dress, what job I have, how I can say to people that in you know, this first year working in finance, this is what I did for the company or this is the, the bank that I work for or whatever else it might be. Is that where you find your, your security, your power, your identity? Or can you be a person who, who just, with the humility, but with the confidence, can say, my deepest sense of identity is not found in all these external markers. It's found in a God who loves me, a sinner. See, the invitation for every single one of us is, are you walking in line with the gospel? Do some of us today need to be humbled? Because honestly, we today, we've been trusting in ourselves, our intellect, our PhDs, or whatever degrees you have. I mean, I, I remember like when I graduated from my master's of divinity, which was a master's degree in divinity. Can you imagine? Like, I was like, I, I have a master's in divinity. Can you imagine how arrogant that makes someone, you know? I was like, I have a master. I know so much about the Bible. I remember my mentor, I was like, I was like, uh, you know, I remember we were sitting around one time and we were talking about scripture. And I'm like, well, this is what the Greek says and da-da-da. And he, he goes, he stops me and he goes, hey, Drew, you know, um, I really appreciate your insight and stuff. But these next few years together with you, we have to work on getting the seminary out of you. And I was like what do you mean? I'm, uh, this is like, this is three years of education of becoming a master of divinity, you know? <laughs> but it's so interesting. How it, see, this is what happens. We become prideful over things and, and see what it means to live according to the gospel in line with the gospel is that we are people, hopefully, who are humble. 
We are open. We're earnest. We're willing to say, God, I need you. I depend on you. And we're also able to say, God, I'm confident in you. I'm valuable in you. I'm not inferior to anyone because of you. And it's able to give us the kind of fire and confidence and boldness we need to live in this world. The invitation to you and to me is, will we begin to walk in line with the gospel again? To believe that Jesus really is good news and that true equality is really found when we can place our identity deeply and solely in the grace of God.